Good morning, church. Good morning. <laughs> it has been a turnaround. Um, I wanted, first, I want to do some thank yous um, on, a, on a bunch of different levels. Thank you, A, for the outpouring of love that you have showed our family, the amount of um, not sugar-free gifts that you have given us, and the cards that you have sent us, the gifts you have sent us has just been tremendous, and we want to thank you for that. From the Price family, um, we've read all the cards, and we were just thrilled from all the things that you had to say, so thank you for that. The other thing is I want to thank the staff. Um, every so often, Christmas kind of just stacks on top of itself with the Christmas Eve service, the Sunday service, and Christmas. It all kind of hits in this perfect storm, and our staff has been fantastic in being able to turn around these services so quick. So our staff, our volunteers, it, it seems like we just walk up here and things just happen. They don't. There's a lot of planning that goes into all of these things. And we just have a great staff that does that really well. And so I want to thank the staff and the volunteers. Yeah, absolutely. As I was uh, praying through this sermon last night, you know, it's, it's always funny. You, you get rhythms in life. You know, this is how I do what I do. And if I do it this way, it'll all work perfectly. And then something changes all your plans. And it seems like God does that in my life all the time just to kind of get me on my toes and more reliant on him and less reliant on myself. And as I was praying last night, I was thinking about where we're going to land today. And my mind went back to 2006. And maybe you remember where you were in 2006, and maybe you don't, and you're grateful that you don't. But for us as the Price family, that was the year that changed everything for our family, what our life was going to look like and the trajectory that it was going to take us on. It was one of those moments where I would probably say it was our biggest step of faith in our family's life. And we've had a lot of steps of faith. This is probably the biggest one. It was the first one. It was the scariest one. It was the year that I, I left my, um, what I would call a very lucrative job and probably a, too easy of a job for how much money I was getting paid. And I decided to become a full-time pastor and move to a place that I'd never been before. We sold our house, literally moved out to the desert. We knew of one person. I would say that they were, they're my friend now. We're good friends now, but I didn't know what I was getting myself into. And so we sold everything. We piled up. We went down to the desert, and we ended up just loving on junior high kids. We just said, hey, let's teach you about Jesus and what that looks like. And, and I remember getting to use all the things that I had learned over the last 10 years of volunteering with youth. And then also getting to um, emulate and uh, kind of live out the same things that all these great pastors that had shown me what it looks like to be a godly pastor that had poured into my life, and I was able to do that as well. And so we left our friends, we left our family, we left our church family, and uh, needless to say, when we left on that day, there were many, many tears that were shed. I mean, there's actually a video of me trying to say I love you and I just, you know, blubbering like a baby because I'm like, these are the people that love, love me. This is what the church looks like. They've cared for me. And, and I remember we just, we were so excited and so sad all at the same time. And as we got into the desert, ministry was amazing. It was so much fun to get to do this thing that I'm like, pastors have the best job in the world, which is true. It just happens to be the hardest job in the world as well. I just forgot that part. Kids were getting baptized. They were growing in their faith. We got to raise up multiple interns. Some of those interns right now are actually lead pastors in California. Um, one's planted, one's taken over a church. It's fantastic. 
And so we got to do all these things, and we started a college ministry, which is always exciting as kids come and go. Uh, I got to start preaching at adult services and, and doing big boy preaching, so I started doing that. And through all of those things, God was just so faithful. Well, the problem is this. 2010 hit. And I don't know if you remember what was going on with your bank account in 2010, but a lot of people are still reeling from what took place when there was a downturn in the economy. And when that hit, churches get hit real quick. And all of a sudden, their budgets were tightened up, their tithing wasn't what it used to be, and churches had to start making some really hard decisions. And so unfortunately, during that time, we would find out that we were going to be a part of that decision. And that decision was to let me go and to have the interns that I had raised up take over in the roles that I was doing and get the opportunity to do that. And um, I remember sitting down with uh, the executive pastor and the lead pastor, and they just said, we just want you to know one thing. You have done nothing wrong. You didn't do anything wrong. As a matter of fact, you did exactly what we asked you to do, which is raise up people in the church that would then move into ministry and do that. And so they were very generous and very kind, and they gave us a four-month severance package, Say, hey, we want you to find a great church. We want you to go and be where God wants you, and this should get you there. Well, that's great, and it was fantastic. The problem was it took a lot longer than four months to find a job in another church. And so as we were tightening our belts, we realized we had to make some decisions because what ended up happening, it would be five months after that four months until we would find a job. And so we quickly moved out of our home and we rented it so we wouldn't lose our home. And then someone that we knew from our church said, hey, I know you're in a tough spot. Let me rent you my place until you get on your feet and you figure out where God wants you. And he gave us a ridiculous discount. He's all, utilities are included. You just pay me this much and it's good. And that happened. And then something that I've, I've talked about maybe once or twice up here, or we talk about it in our family all the time, it, it has literally changed the way I view Scripture. It has changed the way that I understand the church. It has made the Scripture come alive, and there is a part of that that has allowed me to see what the early church looked like for us. And so as I was working weird, odd jobs, at one point I was a substitute teacher, can't believe that ever happened, and I was doing that. I was painting houses, cleaning pools, whatever it took, but there was no money really coming in. And this is what happened. Families started showing up to our doorstep with envelopes of cash, saying, we love you. We care about you. We know what happened. We know it's, it's not your fault. It's just the situation and what it is. And we want to help you through this time as you look for a job. We had people show up and give us gift cards so our family would never go hungry. Uh, we had people from other churches that we knew that heard about what was happening. We weren't publicizing this, but they heard that we want to help you and support you. Checks would show up in the mail. I remember there was people from other states that were sending us money. And in that moment, what I realized is the church had come along alongside and loved us and cared for us and shown us the real tangible expression of the gospel in a way that affected our family. We never went hungry. We were never homeless. We did move three times in nine months, and that is not fun. Can I, that is not fun, but we did get rid of a lot of stuff. <laughs> and you've got to ask this question. Why would anyone do that? <laughs> 
Why would people take their hard-earned money and give it to someone that they know a little bit or maybe don't even really know that much at all? Why would they be willing to do that? What causes someone to make decisions that way, to live in that way? Well, this is where we find ourselves today in the scripture. We get a glimpse of what this looks like and why this is played out. We have been in the book of Acts. We are literally ending chapter four today, and then we're gonna press into a little bit more into chapter five, and then we're gonna kind of take a break as Easter starts to get closer to us. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Acts four. We're gonna start in 32, and we're gonna go all the way through 37. Uh, I'm not going to jump around in a lot of passages today. There's only going to be, I think, two other passages that I'm going to look at today. And we're just going to look at those and how they relate to what's going on and just kind of talk about what's happened. So if you don't have a Bible, you can follow along. But let's just see what God has to say. Now, the full member, <clears throat> the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's go ahead and pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you for this section of scripture. Thank you for allowing me to experience it firsthand. And it sounds romantic, Lord, but you know my heart during those nine months and what that felt like the uncertainty, but always watching you provide. Lord, I ask that this morning as we look at this, that you would transform our hearts, how we think about the brothers and sisters of Christ in the church, how we would think about the possessions that we have, the money that you've blessed us with. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would convict the men and women that are here today, that you would open their eyes to what it means to live in community with one another. I also ask that there's anything that I shouldn't be sharing or communicating, saying that you would take it from all of my mind and my notes and my words. We trust you, we believe you, we follow you, and we worship you, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. <clears throat> now, remember, as we've been walking through this passage two weeks ago, we talked about how the church was praying for boldness. They wanted boldness, and specifically, boldness to share the gospel. That is the story of Jesus Christ, the good news of the Savior come to earth to die for our sins. And what we see as the result of that praying for boldness as they share the gospel is an outrageous generosity. And there's three things that I want us to see in this passage, three categories within this. And the first one is this. They were of one heart and soul. They were of one heart and soul. Now, some translations would say heart and mind. But we're going we're gonna to look at heart and soul. But the heart is the center. And we've talked about this before. In the Eastern culture, the heart is the center of the individual. It's where everything flows from. It's where everything comes from. All right? Mind, emotions, will, thoughts, all of that flows from the heart. And it says that they were connected in that way in the heart. There was an emotional level where each one of the person felt what was going on. Now, <clears throat> 
Maybe you've experienced this if you've uh, had a loved one or siblings or kids or somebody like that. You ever uh, watch one of your kids about to get hurt and you feel it? Anyone ever, like, is it just me? Am I crazy? Like, you watch your kid, you're like, they're going to fall. They're about to get injured. And your gut tightens up and you physically feel a pain, something going on in your body because they're about to get hurt. They're going to experience something very unpleasant. And your love for that individual causes you to feel that in the same way. This is what we're seeing here, is that the love that they had within each other, that they were connected in such a way that when one person hurt, they all hurt. They all experienced that when they were going through it. They were also, the idea of how they thought of of one mind, they were in full agreement of their understanding of the gospel. And for the first time, the scriptures made sense as the apostles would explain what the Bible was saying and who it was about, that it was all about Jesus, as they thought back on the fact that Jesus explained that all the scriptures revolved around him, they all understood, they had one theology where they were all connected and they understood and they were on mission and on purpose in what they did. And what we see is there is great unity of mind, will, love, and purpose in all that they did. It was like one organism working together for the glory of God. As I was studying this section, I realized that this actually is a fulfillment of Scripture. Even more so, it's an answer to prayer. It's actually a prayer that Jesus prayed before he went to the cross, okay? So if you, you probably are thinking, I know what he's going to. I am going to John 17. It's the high priestly prayer. If you know that, that makes sense. If you've, if you've studied that Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross, he is, it's this lengthy section of prayers. He prays about everything that's going on. And there's this section in verse 20 where he actually ends up praying for us. He's, a, he's literally praying for me. He's praying for you in this moment before he goes to the cross, understanding the great importance of what needs to take place. And it says this starting in verse 20, and we'll go through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There's a purpose to this unity that we're talking about. There's a purpose to having all things in common that we need to understand. It's that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. That there is something more important than just like, let's just kumbaya it up. It's more than that. That there is something about being connected. That the example that we have is Jesus came to earth, that he's connected to the Father, and that connection motivated him to be on purpose and on drive and on mission for what he was called to do. And that he's saying that he is praying for that same connectedness for us together. That there is something about how we live together that shows the world 
the beauty and the grace and the power of God in what we do. It's interesting, I, I, I talk to a lot of people and <clears throat> there are times that I hear people say, I don't need the church. I don't need to be around other believers. All I need is just, it's just me and God. I hear that from time to time. But the problem is that there's unity in the church's evidence of being connected to God. That us being connected shows our connectedness to the Savior. It shows that we are connected to the Father. As Jesus prayed this, and I, and I tell people, I said, you know, it's a lie if you think that you don't need the church. It's a lie if you think that you don't need other Christians in your life. And they say, well, what do you mean? I said, we just read the high priestly prayer. If that was the case, why would he pray that? Why would he show that that's significant if it's not important? See, Jesus understands that being connected is important to how we live our life. We're never meant to do life alone. We're never meant to be on our own. Now, there are times that's forced upon us, and that usually is not good. If you look at the letters of Paul, when he's alone, he's not like, and I like to stay alone. No. He's constantly asking about other people, always saying, I can't wait to be with you again, hoping and praying that God would reunite them. And the only thing he can do to be connected is to write letters. He doesn't want to be disconnected. He wants to be connected to the family. It has always been core to being Christians, to being in fellowship. I think we would have such a bigger impact in this world, in this country, in this state, in this city, if we would just start showing the world what it looks like to be connected on this level. I, 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 have, I did not coin this. I'm not the genius who came up with it, but there's someone who said, major on the major and minor on the minors. And unfortunately, what we do is we major on the minors and we minor on the majors. And you're like, what are you talking about? You're not into baseball, are you? Not really, but that's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, there are things that we hold as truth that we are not going to move on that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, that he died for our sins, that we are sinners, that we are in need of salvation, that there is a real place called hell, there is a real place called heaven, and that there is only one way to get there through grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ, right? That Jesus is coming back. Those are things that we're not letting go of, right? Those are like, that's foundational. That's what we believe. Those are majors. Let's hold those. But then there's all these other little things, well, we do communion this way, and we sing that way, and we dress up, and we dress down, and we do that. There's all these little things that aren't that big of a deal. Now, do I hold certain convictions that make me believe another way? Of course. I, I, I have really good friends that I know, that I love, that we fundamentally disagree on some, some where we land in theology. And I hang out with them, and I play golf with them, and we laugh a lot, and I'm not trying to convert them to my thinking. I'm just loving them because they're my brothers. They're my sisters. And we can be okay to disagree and go, but we all hold the same things. We all want to see the name of Jesus proclaimed. We want to see people submit and follow Christ. So let's do that. And when we get to heaven, we'll find out who's right and wrong. And you know what? We won't even care. Because we'll be with Jesus. So it doesn't even really matter. So we all win because we're all losers. Like, that's the best part. You're like, I'm not a loser. <laughs> Sorry. This is what you get two, two in a row. You're going to get this from me. It also says that they, you know, this idea of being of one soul. 
it means that they were connected spiritually. There was something about how they interacted where they were connected spiritually. It wasn't just the tangible side, but it was the spiritual side. It caused them to want the same thing that God wants for his children, that we want the same thing now. You know, there's one God of the universe who loves us, who cares for us, who has saved us, who has brought us together. And he wants his kids to understand more of who he is. He wants his kids connected to him. He wants his kids to bring him glory and honor and praise. And we want the same thing. There's a reason, you, know, you ever notice like when we're singing songs and someone stands up and we all start standing up? Like, you ever wonder why, why we do that? Like this guy raises his hand like, yeah, yeah, I worship Jesus too. Like, do you see like how that works? That we all want the same thing, that we're all understanding. When we come together, there's something unique about this. Whatever you feel about the pandemic and the shutdowns and what took place, I'll just say this. One of the biggest harms that took place to the body of Christ is not being able to come together, hear God's word together, be under God's authority, and sing songs of worship to our Savior. That was the work of the enemy that was trying to destroy the unity in the church. And we have had to fight hard to get that unity back and to bring our people together because of the great importance to who we are. The other thing it says is they shared everything they had. Here's the thing. They were of one heart and one soul. And as they are of one heart and one soul, it produced in them action. It moved them someplace. This connectedness leads to fruit in the lives of God's people. And it wasn't under some compulsion they had to. They shared everything they had. You know, it's funny. I share about my family. I share about my kids. And I try to be generous with that. I noticed growing up with my kids, they all kind of had this trouble with sharing their stuff. I'm like, well, your family must be selfish and the worst. And I came to find that it wasn't just my family. It was your families too. Like kids, for some reason, don't want to share their, their, their special things, their, their toys, the, the thing that's shiny. They don't want to do that. You ever ask why? Did they learn that from me? Did, did we teach them now, make sure you never share your stuff with other people because it's yours. I, I never taught that. Why do we do that? W what about this thing is like that? Why do we need to tell our kids, share with your brother, share with your sister? It's okay. Let them use your toy. If they break it, it's okay. Like, why do we need to say that? I, uh, I have a biblical worldview, a biblical perspective on the world. So everything that I do, I filter through God's word in the Bible. And it all comes back to the same problem, doesn't it? It comes back to sin. It comes back to the garden when everything went sideways. We had a relationship with God and it was broken because here's the reality. We thought we could find joy and comfort and happiness in something other than God. Why do we hold on to the things that we hold on to? Why do we not want to give up the things that we have? Why do we have a hard time sharing? Why are our fists really tight with certain things? Because we believe that those things will bring us comfort and joy and happiness in our life. And if we let go of them, we will lose the comfort and happiness that we think we have. The problem is this. Everything is going to break and fall apart. And we know that it's all going to end up in a landfill. 
So we have to keep grabbing other things because those are the things that are going to bring us the joy. Our kids feel this. They feel the effects of sin in their lives. And so they do the same thing. They go, well, this thing will make me happy. It gives me a momentary rush of joy and comfort and happiness. And God is saying, you don't need that stuff. I am the comfort that you need. I am the comfort that doesn't grow old. We're just doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did back in the garden. We think that stuff brings us comfort. It brings us security. As God is bringing his people back to him, he's starting to show us his great meta-narrative. And maybe you've never heard that term before. The Bible is a, a meta-narrative, a big arch of a story that goes across the entire span of the Bible. And as you look at that, um, if we don't see the meta-narrative of the story... All the little stories are hard to understand. You ever like read them like, that's a weird story. That doesn't make any sense. Like, why is that in here? Like, why did God kill those people? Why did God do that? Next week, we're going to have one of those stories. It's where we're going to be, okay? But if you don't understand the the meta-narrative, which is creation, fall, redemption, new creation, and glorification, if you don't understand that arc, These stories don't make sense. And God is saying, I love you. I want you to understand the big story. He calls the people to himself to show this narrative through the entire Bible. We know them as Hebrews or Jews or Israelites. He wants to show them how life works best when we submit and obey God. The problem is they had a hard time doing that, didn't they? They had a really hard time following God, and they do what fallen, broken people do, which is act like fallen, broken people. They seek after things other than God. And the story that we see is God continually pursuing, chasing after, and loving a people that are resistant to his love, and they have no idea that they're doing this. They're marching straight to hell. And so we have this book in the Bible in the Old Testament called Deuteronomy. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating book as you start to study it and understand it and know what's going on. But God is taking these people, these Israelites, he's starting to tell them how to live. He says, this is what it looks like to live for me. This is what it looks like to eat. This is what it looks like on how we celebrate and the parties that we throw. This is what it looks like to worship. This is what it looks like to how to act with each other. When it comes to being generous, he shows us this. And so the, the, the book of Deuteronomy starts walking us through how this people should look. And they're meant to look very different from the rest of the world. Because when we follow God, we will look different from the rest of the world when they're pursuing their own things. And so we get to this passage in Deuteronomy that I think is really important for us to see because it starts to show a lot of God's heart. Because he's saying, this is what it looks like to be like me, to follow me, to love me, and to live in the way that I live. Deuteronomy 15, it's going to be verses 4 through 8, and then I'm going to hit 11 before we, we hop out of it. It says, but there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you would strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I have commanded you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. And you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor... 
in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his needs, whatever it may be. And then in verse 11, it says this, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. I love that all the way back in the New Testament, we see the heart of God. That he would care for the marginalized. He would care for those that can't provide for themselves. That he would help those out that are in a destitute situation. That a community, God's community, the Israelites, live in such a way that is different. That they help those in need, no matter where they are in the land, no matter what they're going through, no matter what they have to have in their life. He's saying, you will help them. You will love them the way that I have loved you. And we, so this picture that we have is how God wants us to live with each other. God's family should be like this. As Christians, we are a part of God's family. This applies to us today. But we also see this is a fulfillment of Scripture in the Word of God all the way back in the Old Testament. It's going all the way that the church is doing. They're living this out right now. They're doing this very thing. But it's not through the law that's making this happen. It would be done through his son. That his son would show us what this looked like tangibly. And then the son would give us the Holy Spirit, meaning that the only way that we can look, act, think, and be like God is if God resides in our heart. And that is the work of the Holy Spirit. The book of Acts is how the Holy Spirit empowers God's people to act differently. To show the world the Lord A couple of things that we need to understand is we start to look at how these men and women were just beyond generous. We see that it's not, it's not that they all sold everything they had and threw it in a big pile and then they said, okay, let's divvy it up perfectly. That's not what the text says. That's, that's not what happened. And, and our mind goes, ah, that's what happened. It's not. It, 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 it says that Many, didn't say all, a lot of people did that. A lot of people sold homes and properties and extra things that they had to give to the needy. And so they would give that and lay it at the apostles' feet. So there were some that didn't, okay? Those who did that gave because they had a deep burning desire of love for one another in their heart to help someone. They weren't forced to do this. Not everyone was given money. It says that any that had need, some had needs, some didn't. There, and then they would give money to those that was appropriate to what the issue was in their life. Whether it's they couldn't afford to you know, buy grain or they couldn't afford to you know, pay whatever taxes they had. It didn't, whatever it was, it was individualistic to the individual and the apostles would then give that money out based on the needs that they had. See, we all have different needs. We're all in different places. I'm still not taking money from random people from all over the church, all over the United States right now. That need has passed. 
God sustained us through that time in our lives. They were motivated by the same generosity that God had given to them through his son, Jesus. See, that's what they were motivated through. They understood the gospel in such a way that they wanted to be like Jesus. They wanted to be sacrificial. They wanted to put aside their needs, their wants, their desires, their comfort for those. Because that's what the gospel is, right? That's how that plays out. They, they didn't earn it. They didn't deserve it. They're like, we want to be like Jesus. Jesus came and lived this way. Jesus gave in this way. I want to be like Christ. I want to do that. And they were becoming more and more like Jesus every day, which is why their generosity got more and more crazy. Those that have received much tend to give a lot back. You ever notice that? It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not. I've watched culture. I I watch people. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are giving away like millions and billions of dollars. Like they just give away a lot of money. A lot of them, especially when they have gone through what it means to be in want, what it means to be in need, those who have experienced more of that tend to be even more generous. Well, why? They have been in the side of being in want. They have been on the side of knowing that they don't know how they're going to make it to the next meal how they're going to pay the next rent check. Um, I, I, I've been able to experience this um, through my marriage to Annette. Uh, I have been beyond blessed with in-laws that are fantastic. Uh, my mother-in-law is here today. She's visiting. And um, just the generosity that I've seen through their family is something I've never experienced in my life growing up. I just, I never experienced that. There's an openness to how they deal with anyone and everyone that they give. And here's the thing. Here's why. When they fled Iraq, they left with nothing. They had nothing. And then they got here, and what they saw is over and over again, God blessed them and provided for them and opened up jobs and opened up opportunities and opened up money to come in and family and places to stay and places to live. And as God has blessed them, they remember where they were and what they went through. And there's a generosity that pours out of that. It has been a beautiful picture for me to see the generosity of Jesus through the life of my in-laws. But that's the purpose, right? We get to see Jesus through that generosity because that is from God. It's a reflection of our God. And this is what he's wanting us to live like. See, generosity is just living out the gospel in a tangible way. We were in need because we were separated from God because of sin. There's the need. There's the problem. What does God do? He sends his son. Why? Out of a love for us. Then Jesus lived the life that we couldn't, became the perfect substitution, became the sacrifice. He took our sin. He died in our place. We did not earn it. We did not deserve it. And then because he's still just a great God, he then gives us and overflows his righteousness onto us. So now when God sees us, he sees Jesus and his righteousness. Like, this is just God being generous upon generous upon generous to us in every single way. And then, you know what's even great? He could have stopped there. God can't love you more than the sacrifice of his son. But then he just blesses us all the time. He just keeps blessing us. Why? Because there is no limit to God's generosity. It's a well that has no bottom. And he wants to pour it out on his people. And what he's saying is, is you have 
felt and experienced the endless generosity of the Lord, it should flow in us to a place where it's overflowing as well. And we want to give that out as well to anyone and everyone. That's how we should be living. That's how we should be thinking. See, these, these men and women were freed from the slavery of materialism. It was no longer their comfort. It was no longer their hope. And because of that, they could do amazing things. They reflect the love of the Father. They understood their stuff was actually really God's stuff that God had let them borrow. And they're like, if God is generous like this and he's giving me this stuff, I think he wants me to be generous like him. And every time they'd give, they'd point to God in their lives. And this is the new community that we call the church. The third thing is they testified about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As they prayed for God to give them boldness to share, they shared all the time. And don't miss how the passage is laid out. If you look at just the structure of it, it says that they were of one heart and soul, and then they shared the gospel of Jesus, and then they emulated the gospel in their lives through generosity. Where's Where's the gospel? It's right in the middle. Everything revolves around the gospel. It's what everything hinges upon. That is the reason why all of this is taking place. Showing the world that what real sacrificial love looks like when Jesus transforms your heart. And because they were all transformed, they all were of one heart, they all had new hearts, they were living this out every single day. And everyone around them was like, what is going on with these people? Who does that? God's love and generosity is extremely attractive. And it draws people in like a moth to a flame. Church, we are called to live this way. We are called to be radical like this. We are are called to show the world how God's children act so we can point to his glory and his son, Jesus Christ. Where can you live out this generosity? What things are you holding on to that you think are going to bring you more comfort, more joy, more happiness than a relationship with the Father and the Son? What is it? I I don't know where that is for you. I'm not a mind reader. I'm not a heart reader. But you know. And that God loves you enough to to call you out and say that thing that you hold to so desperately will never satisfy you. It will never bring you the joy that you want. I look back over all the years of all the things that I coveted so much and I finally got, and I can't even remember what half of them are anymore. Because they don't sustain, they don't fulfill. What do you need to let go of? What are you holding on to tightly? What do you need to open your hands up to? What do you need to release and let go? Let's learn from the early church. Let's see how they lived, and let's step out in faith the way that they did. Not because we're forced to, not because I've guilted you. If you're like, ah, you just guilted me, don't. Don't. Do it because God has transformed your heart, and you have a deep desire to be generous like the Father. See others as more important than yourself. What would it look like to surrender everything for the glory of God? 
that if you looked at all the things that you had in your life and you said, this is an opportunity to bring glory to God in some way, shape, or form. This is a way to reflect the oneness that Jesus prayed for us in the high priestly prayer. What would that look like? There's a passage that I was going to share on Christmas Eve, but I didn't. And now I'm sharing it now, and it makes a lot of sense as to why I'm sharing it now. Philippians 2, verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the mind and the heartbeat of Christ. This is the heart that he's given each and every one of us, that we would consider others. Do we do that? What if we started doing this? Could you imagine as people heard about how we cared and loved for each other, that they'd be like, well, I want to be a part of a family that does that. What if I'm in need? Who's going to do that? We've always been designed to be that. We've always been designed to be God's people in that way. Let me pray. Jesus, I thank you for this section. As Even as I was preaching, I feel like I'm preaching to myself half the time, that there is something about considering others more important than myself that I, I, I probably just think too darn highly of myself, and I really need to stop doing that. I really start, need to start thinking about how can I serve and love others. And so I thank you for convicting me in those areas. But I pray that you would convict others. And as they start talking about what does it mean to surrender everything, what does it mean to let go of everything in their life, knowing that you are the one that fulfills all. Lord, I thank you for the blessing of, of my family going through that nine months of just a very difficult time. I would never trade seeing you work the way you've promised, the way you've shown us in Acts, I ask that my brothers and sisters here today would be able to experience that in some way, shape, or form to watch you provide, to know that you are in control and that we can be just like you, Jesus, and how we love others. Pray this in your glorious and amazing name, amen.